54th episode of Rank and Review. I am, as always, your host of Random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And this episode, we're doing another one of those blind alley things, you know, where I explore a genre that I have been neglecting or that I just am less familiar with. This time, returning guest Eric Jurgens is going to help talk me through six anime films. And as you'll hear on our introduction, it took two tries to get this podcast recorded. And somehow we ended up reviewing <laughs> nine movies or something like this. So uh, we got six adult-oriented anime films to discuss. And as usual, you should go into it expecting there to be spoilers and expecting there to be coarse language. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Rankin Review. Please send feedback to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I'd love to hear any kind of feedback. Check out the website at rankinview.ca and do make a point of checking out the Terror Table podcast because they're another local podcast and they're friendly to my show and I'm friendly to theirs. If you like Rank and Review, I think you will like the Terror Table podcast. All of that is out of the way. Let us jump in to the world of anime. Eric Jurgens, welcome back to Rank and Review, my brother. Back, <laughs> back again, again for the, the second, second time. time. This time for sure. I mean, we've had some <laughs> uphill battles in the past on Rank and Review, but I think this is the first time we've almost had to do like a, a, a page one rewrite do-over on an episode. Uh, not, not all of it's... I mean, I think some of it is providential. Because what I originally wanted when I sort of made the declaration out into the internets out there is like adult-oriented anime. Um, I was sort of thinking like for grown-ups. And uh, the original list that you and I met and talked about were sort of like animes that could be enjoyed by everyone. And this list that we have now is an adult list of movies, I think. So for me, that's a win. I don't know if you feel like you've compromised at this point, but at least we're not re-recording the entire same show again. No, I, I'm actually, now that we've gotten some distance, uh, to let people know what happened is I'm in Vancouver right now. You are still in Saskatchewan. We did not fly you out to record this. Um, and I insisted, hey, sometimes when you do distance episodes the uh the audio doesn't feel great because you 
usually end up just recording a Skype call and it can be serviceable, but I had enough equipment here that I was like, tell you what, I'm going to record my end separately and we're going to stitch them together, have it sound great. Hopefully what you're listening to right now sounds fantastic because I'm in a, I would call it semi-professional recording setup right now. Um, unfortunately, I did not record my end. Um, I'm going to call it hostile user design was the reason, but really I poor carpenter blames his tools. Uh, yeah, I didn't record. And I was I was demoralized at the time for sure. Um and I definitely felt responsible. Now though that we're a distance away from it, I I think this is going to result in a better overall episode. First things first, I didn't really feel on the last time we recorded. I felt uh, well I was tired, I was underslept, I was kind of stressed because I had overbooked that day and I had to duck out from another commitment early, which I had the podcast set first and then I tried to squeeze in another thing beforehand and then I had to like leave and I didn't feel super great about that and I just wasn't on point for the episode. So in that regard, I'm actually excited to re-record. And then on top of that, as you said, you wanted adult focused anime and I had quickly put together a list and some of it I understood was more like things that could be enjoyed by adults but could also be for everyone and some of it I just forgotten how let's say family oriented they were um this time around though we were able to correct that so we've replaced three from my original list of quote-unquote adult anime um and now I think three is enough that we have effectively a different list. So we get to re-record with me much more energetic and on point, and we get to do an, a different list. So this will have a different flavor to it. I think overall, this is a good thing. And you're not feeling ragged today. You're good to go right now. Oh, I'm pumped. <laughs> well, um, anime is not typically my bag, but it's not due to lack of effort on my part. Especially in the 90s when there was the sort of first anime explosion, largely due to the popularity of Akira, which is one of the movies we're going to be talking about. But I gotta say, a lot of the big stalwarts, if you listen to the podcast, I took a pretty hot, wet shit on Ghost in the Shell. I wasn't really that impressed with that. And uh, a lot of the times I'd have movies recommended to me, one of them is on the list today, uh, and I'd like, yeah, this is a really kick-ass anime, this will get you into anime. And yeah, I can recognize that it's for adults, but there's just something so ugly about it that it's like for really juvenile adults or else really sort of, I don't know, creepy adults. <laughs> what I'm looking for is like something that's Miyazaki in scope, but that is going to uh, trigger me intellectually as an adult or that's going to use the animated form to tell a scary story that they wouldn't be able to tell otherwise. I mean, use your medium, and I think like anime being such a such a huge palette to work on. Why not make a terrifying horror movie with it, right? So uh, that's what I'm going to be looking at with these movies. If they don't have the intellectual uh, angle to them to stimulate me, do they at least use the animation form to dazzle me? Because at a minimum, that's what I would want, and it wouldn't seem like it would be such a hard thing to achieve, but. I have a real hard time with non-Miyazaki anime. I've had a real uphill battle finding stuff that I've connected with. 
Now, you have a little bit of insight because we already did this sort of first whack at the anime episode. I was taken in by some of the more, even more romantic... Saying Disney-esque isn't fair, but it's Disney-esque in that it's 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 aiming for that broadest of audiences, right? We're talking about your, your name and, and the, the girl who skipped through time or whatever it was. Is that what it's called? The girl who left through time, but I think anyone will be able to tell what you're talking Yeah. What we're talking about here, I think all of them now, we got hard R's on all of these. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hope so. Sort of like me, maybe the first time I saw Akira, I imagine a kid who watched these too young would be you, for the most part, just sort of confounded and confused by what they saw here. <laughs> uh, I want that sense of wonder, and I want an adult-oriented anime that's going to, you know, either work my horror fans or is going to work me intellectually. And like I've said, it's been a hard find. How did you get into anime, and uh, why did you decide that you were going to draw this line in the, line in the sand and and, uh, and and help drag me kicking and screaming over to your side? <laughs> well, I thought that I was a great uh, representative for anime because, specifically, I'm not super into anime. I really enjoy anime, but I'm not someone who has, like, a life-size wafu pillow or like anime babes on my wall or thinks that they're more steeped in Japanese culture than they really are. But really they're just kind of like, you know, a basement dwelling dweeb. I really feel like I just appreciate it as a medium. Um, and that's honestly where I come from. I, when I hear someone say that they don't like anime, I usually I'm of two minds. My gut reaction is to think he can't not like anime. It's like someone saying, oh, I don't like video games when really they mean like, oh, I don't like video games like Call of Duty or I don't like video games like something that encapsulates what they believe a video game to be in their mind. And they're not considering things like maybe they like Mario. Maybe they like playing Tetris on their phone. That's a video game in the same way. Anime. You don't like anime. There's everything, as we talked about, from like practically Disney movies all the way up to not even Akira. I think we could shoot right past that. And like, there's something like Perfect Blue. Like, there's something out there on this huge spectrum for everyone. And so when someone says, like maybe Larry uh, a few episodes back, eh, I'm not into anime. Again, my reaction is, nah. There's an anime out there for you. However, like I said before. I find anime inherently novel and inherently intriguing regardless of the genre, whether it's a horror, whether it's one of these Disney ones. I just kind of am in it for the format of anime because I find it I, like I find the culture shock still intriguing and unique, even if anime has its own set of tropes or established a uh, set of tropes in its making. I um. I still find it fresh in a way that sometimes, let's say, American cinema isn't. And I can recognize that if that thing that I find fresh and novel and intriguing, if that's the thing that turns you off from anime, then maybe it is a fair statement to say, nah, I am not into anime, full stop. And that's what this list, now that it's been augmented a little bit, now that's what this list is about, is seeing... Hey, is there anime out there for Larry? Well, I've met that short-sighted person who just dismisses animation, period. If it's animation, it's for kids or it should be, but I'm going to dismiss it. I actually knew a guy who just wrote off The Simpsons, even. 
because it's it's animated. If I wanted to watch an animated show, I would be a child, right? And I mean, if that's your approach, obviously I can't help you and you're not listening to this podcast, so it's wasted air. <laughs> um, but I do find things interesting about it. I mean, they like to tell big stories on this canvas, which makes sense. Sure, tell the giant robots and space stories here because it's impractical to shoot this practically, right? Again, use your medium. But watching it from, from my perspective, looking for something that's not tentacle porn and that's not like... Uh, uh, get oh, close one of these movies. Yeah, but, but the, the, or that's not so confounding that, the, that there's something lost in the translation that I feel like either I've missed large swaths of the story or that it's been actually edited to meet my needs. A lot of the movies, especially from the uh, 80s and early 90s, they would cut a lot of the meat out of the movie to try and make it more, quote, accessible. And contradictingly, they've actually made the movie more confusing than it would have already been. So there's a lot of these things working against it, but like I came in wanting to like it and there's something interesting about the style, the rich detail to the backgrounds and to the sort of fluid action, but the very sparse detail to the facial features. It's like the backgrounds look, look like they've been painted with like <laughs> the most incredible detail that you'd ever see and the face to just a few dashes of lines here and there that kind of bounce about it's it's this weird i don't know it's a strange approach i mean to my eyes it just took me a while to get used to it i mean i grew up with astro boy i understood it as an aesthetic but i didn't quite understand why people locked into it but if you're going to use that medium like i said let's see that medium it's if it's so impossible to do an hp lovecraft story because cthulhu uh, monsters are impossible for us to imagine do an animated one because like again you're not going to you're not going to pop your budget and i kept on waiting for that collision of that animated aesthetic with an adult story that hit it right out of the park for me and it it was very elusive it was very elusive so um you'll have to wait till the end to see if we found it see if we found it is there anything else you want to say or should i lift off these list off these movies that we're going to talk about yeah, let's tell people what this is all about. Okay, we're going to talk about a sort of psychological stalker crazy movie called Perfect Blue. We're going to talk about probably the most famous anime movie of all time, Akira. We're going to talk about a strange, I think want to say 90s, well, I found it in the 90s, movie called Ninja Scroll. A brand spanking new one to me, I believe it's from 2007, but you introduced it to me called The Sword of the Stranger. We're going to watch the animated prequel to Train to Busan called Soul Station. And we're going to finish with the mind-melting Inception by way of the cell. But before both of those, Paprika. Uh, let's do this.
Okay, Perfect Blue. This is from director Satoshi Khan. Uh, he's also directed the movie we're going to talk about uh, towards the end of the episode called Papika. Uh, I think this is the sort of movie that made him and uh, is maybe his most famous work. And Paprika is probably maybe more definitive as far as his themes, but we can get more into that. What we're looking at here is a psychological horror movie with sort of a thriller aspect to it as well. We've got this sort of psycho fan aspect and we've got this this woman's falling apart. She was a sort of pop singing sensation as a younger woman and now she wants to transition into being a quote serious actress by doing this very adult very highly sexual movie and it has a lot to do with well the male perception and a lot to do with you know what women feel they have to do to sort of maintain that that male gaze in their lives and how that can be a dangerous and destructive thing uh, impossible not to mention, and I know it's a little bit deja vu because we have had this conversation before, Eric. Uh, I actually went and rewatched Black Swan after having seen this, and it's Ooh. it's pretty crazy how much is liberally borrowed, can we say, from from this movie. Uh, Aronofsky, and there was definitely shot-for-shot shot stuff in Requiem for a Dream, too. I noticed it specifically, the bathtub scene. There's something about Jennifer Connelly being naked in a bathtub that stuck in my head. Uh, <laughs> that was repeated. Weird. Weird. I know. Strange. Um, but that, that image is repeated here. But the whole idea of this evil doppelganger, or is it or is it a doppelganger, is what she's seeing real. Uh, it's incredibly, incredibly, like, embarrassingly close. I really think it's an impressive movie. I think that um, it goes places that it might not have if it wasn't an animated movie. And I guess that's to the good or bad as far as the extreme of the violence and the sexuality of the movie. But all of it has purpose. They're not just showing us this so that we can dwell on it and enjoy it and get off on it. It does have something to say. So largely high praise for Perfect Blue, but I'm happy to hear a second opinion. Um, I forget what I said last time, so we're just going to have to do it live. I, <laughs> I enjoyed Perfect Blue more than I remembered enjoying it when I watched it for the first podcast. I did not since rewatch it, so I'm going to just go off of those feelings, but it's, it's just an, an emotionally, it's much more emotionally intelligent than I gave it credit for in my memory. Um, and it just goes that level deeper than I had expected, even having seen it once before. I remembered vaguely, like, it's intriguing, it's good, but I forgot the actual depths that this uh, movie goes to in bringing out its themes. Um, you talk about, you spoke about it, for, um, the challenges for the character in this movie from specifically a female perspective. I took a, a broader look at it and from what I would call a celebrity worship culture. Um, and specifically this movie reminded me of when I was in London for, I didn't go specifically for, but I was at London and I was in the, or at the London film festival. Um, and it was really fun and I got to see a lot of celebrities, but there were a lot of people there and it was very clear that they were following these celebrities um that they would go from event to event to get headshots i assume to auction but there were people there that had like collections of 
full printouts of celebrities and the implication being that hey they need to get their collection done so if Helena Bonham Carter doesn't sign it here they're going to just meet her up at the next red carpet event and they're just going to keep doing that and this movie evoked that quite a bit for me it just it feels off and I was just in the audience I couldn't imagine going from event to event to event thinking uh that person's here again lovely um having your whole life on display is one thing but just knowing that of the millions i'd say millions is a fair shake of the millions of people that anywhere from appreciate your work to idolize you at least few of them have to be bad eggs and that's kind of what this movie is about well, and she's originally pursuing it. She wants this. She wants that attention. And the more she's in that spotlight, the more, you know, she realizes that she doesn't. It's funny to me because well, the first time I saw the movie, the most indelible thing about it was the stalker with that weird, you know, mule kicked face. That... <laughs> I call him Japanese Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, he seems like really off. And it's interesting how he's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. But in a lot of ways, there's two other villains in the movie that are greater villains. Her her personal uh, manager, personal assistant, and herself. <laughs> yes. So he might be, he might actually place third in that list. <laughs> um, and, and one of the least threatening people to her. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in in his view or the sin that she's done is to violate his image of her. He liked her being this pure K-pop, you know funny giggle girl and now that she's become this sexual thing she's violated his idea of what she's supposed to be and that's somehow unforgivable it made this this uh, uh, affectionate stalking turn into this evil stalking yes (laughs) either way stalking is bad kids rank and review does not endorse stalking (laughs) i can't believe we'd get so political on this podcast (laughs) <laughs> everybody everybody wants a piece of her or to be her like i said up to and including her 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 manager uh her perception of herself and they use these mirror images and these water images again throughout this is sort of maybe unsubtly talking about her sort of fractured psychology but it's a lot deeper than what i typically would find in anime and, you know, when you maybe first hear about this, you know, sexual stalker thriller, you imagine it to be this awful, rapey, you know, <laughs> creep thing. And there's, I'm going to say a percentage of that, but maybe about like five or six <laughs> percent. Enough to address the themes that are important to the story and to be honest about what assault would look like, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it mostly, I think, tackles these things. Like you said, while it does get into it, it mostly tackles it from the perspective of her trying to push herself as an actor. Both a, like, publicly push herself as an actor, as in push her image that she is now an actor, not just a K-pop star. Um, But also she's trying to push her abilities as an actor. Um, There's one scene in this movie where she's recording on set and the director goes, Okay, and next up, the rape scene, which is uh, 1997 was a different time. But that's kind of... Hmm? Let's not sugarcoat this at all, hey? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that's kind of the focal point of these themes for a lot of the movie. And so 
it kind of gives us, I don't know if you call it like this safe outlet where you feel that something's off. You definitely know that there's this stalker guy, but a lot of the internal emotional fracturing comes from her and how she perceives herself and how she perceives her career. And most importantly, how she perceives what her career is doing to herself. And it just turns out that these um, feelings have real, uh, real world analogs that are actual physical threats. She's not just paranoid. Everyone is actually after her. Yes. <laughs> I do appreciate, too, that we are stuck with her in her headspace, even in her worst moments. It's all about her and how she feels and how she's reacting to all of this. Um, I don't. I, if it was about us, it would be more fetishistic or worse. It would be preachy. It would be saying, shame on you for this. You're complicit in this. You wanted this. The sort of funny games approach to, to, to horror, which I find A, disrespectful to me as an audience member and B, disrespectful to the genre of horror itself. If you don't have the guts to honestly be what you are, if you can't, you know, if you have to wink at us in order to justify it, if you have to, you know, somehow rise above the material and look down upon it, uh, I find that difficult. And this movie could have gone that way, and it doesn't. <laughs> so, uh, big points for that. It is a capital A adult anime movie, not just because of its content, but because I think you need to be an adult human being to process it. It does not talk down to you in any way, and I appreciate that. Uh, um, gore and sex aside, I honestly think, for the most part, a child would be bored with this because, as you said, they wouldn't be able to process it. It wouldn't make sense. But as an uh, emotionally grown, hopefully, adult, it speaks to something to me, I think, even though I'm not a celebrity yet. Yeah. And this is the kind of movie that was super popular when it was coming out, right? The, the sort of combination of like single white female basic instinct, you know, uh, psycho thrillers where there's like a crazy person and there's like a lot of sex, a lot of violence. And that sort of is what everybody paid their ticket to see. Uh, this is an examination of that, but it, you know, like I said, it's not it's not stuck up about it. And um, a lot of the movies of that ilk that were coming out at this time were just doing that unironically. They were, and again, part of me says if you're going to do it, do it. Don't pretend to be anything but what you are. Um, but this movie is self-aware. And you don't expect an animated movie to be self-aware. You kind of, maybe that's unfair of me, but I, I expected less of this movie. So it overperformed me as a result. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. No, I absolutely think so. Um, even, even under the idea of, hey, we're going to watch some adult-themed animes. Again, the thing I keep coming back to is that this movie is emotionally intelligent. And that's the, even amongst, I mean, especially amongst some adult anime, we'll get to Ninja Scrolls later, um, but it's really easy to think you're being adult, or, or it's really easy to think you're being mature, but you're not. Well, I think Ghost in the Shell is a good example of that. It's adult because we're seeing robot boobs and they're talking about high-minded sort of philosophical sci-fi. But it's not adult in that it's engaging or exciting in any way. Right? At least... Especially not exciting. Not to this particular guy. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sorry. Um, no, honestly, I feel like our opinions of Ghost in the Shell line up. Is, is Ghost in the Shell secretly on this list? Oh, 
six and a half movies. But like, yeah, just another that opportunity was to give it a kick. But yeah, no, let's get back <laughs> to perfect. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed how this. Uh, you you spoke about it before, but the movie sets up that a there is a for real stalker. And B, there is someone who wishes harm upon her. There's a package at one point that explodes and injures, uh, kills, injures or kills somebody. Um, so you know that she's in actual danger. And as the audience member, as we go through this movie, you're kind of forced. And you already got the spoiler warning, so we've spoiled it for you. It was the manager. But there's a lot of characters that she needs to be able to rely on who could just as easily be the people who are threatening her her old bandmates obviously may have a reason to have an axe to grind other um fans and uh yeah other fans other people she works with everyone around her it's this kind of almost catty Oh, you have to smile to my face, but what are you doing behind my back? And it really it really gets to you because that part of it is I think true to life. And that's why the paranoia works so well because it's it's not just paranoia in that you're making a mountain out of a molehill. It's that you know there's a mountain out there somewhere and it could be disguised as any of these molehills. And using the medium of animation to sort of show her kind of, quote, madness. Because some of the stuff she sees makes sense. Like it's her, her, her manager dressed up like her. But other stuff she sees does not make sense. <laughs> like her <herself> hopping <laughs> from like skyline to skyline or building or building. Uh, like... Uh, She's coming apart, and again, I don't think that would come across as much as Aronofsky tried. I mean, uh, I do think that, that Black Swan is a separate entity, but I think that, especially in the 90s, that was using the medium to make that come across. She is being pulled apart, and the great sin of all of this is that she's usually the most punished for when she makes a decision for herself. Because when she makes a decision, it's something that she's not supposed to do. She's not supposed to break up the the band, right? She's not supposed to do an adult-oriented movie. She's doing all this stuff. She's making all these decisions, and she's not living up to the role she's supposed to play. And she is punished for it. Now, she comes out the other side of it, but it's pretty grueling. She gets put through a meat grinder. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> It seems a lot for her poor thing to put up with just just to get, you know, some self-initiative or some uh, agency in her life. But get it, she does. <laughs> Is there anything else you want? I think that's a good place to end. No, no, I, I, no, I feel we'll just end up going in circles of praise if we go much further. Uh, it is a horror movie. It is psychological and it is you know hard and go in knowing that but if that's what you're into this is a good example of it it was a dream that i saw you mustn't let that boy go the city will crumble so many people so many will die we get to meet akira again akira when will it happen? Kaneda, we're not back in school anymore. Now you're king of the mountain, aren't you? But it's all garbage! Neo Tokyo is going to change soon. 
We aren't the ones who will change it. Wait for the wind, Karga Akira. You've got to return to the laboratory! Listen to me! In my brain! What did you do? That which is called science will be dominant. That which is called civilization devastates the spirit of man! You changed my friend, didn't you? Your friend has made his choice. We have every indication that Akira is about to manifest itself. The moment of Lord Akira's awakening is drawing closer! The time of atonement is upon us! Are your hearts prepared? The time is nigh! Everybody knows Akira, and most people have positive feelings about Akira. I am one of them. I, I do think that it's a tough egg to crack. Like, I couldn't honestly sit here and tell you that I understood all of it. <laughs> but I do understand that it is an epic piece of animation, and that it, it is sort of responsible for popularizing it on this side of the ocean. There was the time before Akira, and there was the time after Akira. And I also have to say, for a movie made in the 80s, the animation still looks amazing. Amazing. Like, the fluid is... The, the fluid motion and the action and the just the, the character beats captured by just the animation themselves, completely rivaling Disney. And again, in the service of a much more adult, much crazier, much more psychedelic story than you'd ever imagine. One gets the feeling like the people who made this movie were given carte blanche to do whatever the hell they wanted. And it's interesting, because the guy who made the movie is also the guy who wrote the anime. He started the anime, got about halfway through it, made the movie, and then finished the anime. So what informed what, which informed the other? I mean, it becomes this huge thing that is Akira. I think that if you just want to watch it for visual spectacle alone, you're going to get your money's worth. If you want to wade in and try and sort of make a piecemeal out of this, like, like try and figure out what everything's going to do, you might be frustrated by it. The only real bad thing that I can say, just to get out the gate, and I promise to give you your turn as well, is that ever since I was a kid, I have this echo chamber in my head of Tetsuo! Canada! Tetsuo! Canada! It feels like two-thirds of the dialogue of this movie is just those characters' names being screamed at each other. And that does actually kind of get old. I, uh, I watched it one and a half times now for the podcast, I mean, having seen it before, but I rewatched it and then rewatched sort of the big apocalyptic finale to see if I could make more out of the, uh, on a second pass. Um, there's a lot to love. There's a lot to ponder. It's kind of like an, an unbeatable movie. Like it's, it's review proof at this point. It is the anime. So I like it. It's Akira. Check it out. I mean, what more can we add to this conversation, Eric? Yeah, what are we going to do? Be like, actually, both of us hate Akira, and we're here to tell you, what, 25 years after it's come out? What's up with it? Um, No, the, the Akira, like you said, it's steadfast in the zeitgeist. There's no moving it from its position as king of anime crossovers, as in anime that has crossed over the seas. Um, 
Yeah, the Tetsuo, Kaneda, that stuff is a little over dramatic and it's a little excessive. But overall, I think this is a masterful film. Um, it kind of reminds me of a game for no other reason than production value, but there's this game uh, called Chrono Trigger, which is a very uh, popular, also Japanese-made Super Nintendo game. And I think the thing with Chrono Trigger is that it had the best of the best of the industry all firing on all cylinders and the sum of the parts of their creative endeavor was pretty good to begin with but coming together they made something that was even bigger and Akira kind of reminds me of that in the same way where everyone is bringing their A game everyone is bringing their A game and you feel it scene to scene the sounds, the music, the cinematography, or the, I guess the composition because it's a animation, but like the visual spectacle of it before we even get into the like script and the moments are all very well done moment to moment. The editing, I guess you would call it, um, but like the, the pacing of it, it just flows from one concept to the next. You get introduced to this Mad Max uh, vehicle stuff at the beginning. You get shown our protagonists who are the slightly more noble street trash <laughs> than the others. Um, you find these freedom fighters and then all of a sudden telekinesis gets introduced and then there's a military industrial complex part and that's all just bang, bang, bang and it flows so well and it just becomes so much bigger than itself so quickly. Let's talk a little bit about plot because I don't think we really have yet. It's it's actually uh, deceptively complex because what we are seeing here is a, a, a circular narrative and we're sort of plopped down in the middle of it. But this is a new Tokyo, I believe, that's been rebuilt since a bomb has destroyed it. And it is now the future of 2019. What? 2019? <laughs> uh, and um, uh, these orphans, who's, who they'd lost their parents in the previous devastation, are basically grown up as street gangs. They have these really cool motorbikes and uh, they do street gang stuff. Tetsuo and Canada are friends they might as well be brothers who've grown up as orphans in this tough environment and uh canada has just better skills and a better just makeup to deal with this world tetsuo is smaller he's weaker he's got a chip on his shoulder and uh when he comes into contact with this escape government experiment and uh, this psychic power is triggered within him it unfortunately brings out all of the worst aspects of his personality. Um, and he decides that he needs to seek out this Akira, this, this source of power that was what triggered the original devastation before, I think, slowly coming to the conclusion that he is that source himself. He is the new Akira, at least until the old Akira presents himself. It gets pretty deep into the weeds once we get into the third act. But... Yes, as you're saying, the visuals. I remember even as a kid seeing this, just the the way they did those light tracers off of the back of the bikes as they're being pursued through the streets of Neo Tokyo was like just visually by itself amazing. You didn't have to understand what was going on. You had to pick your jaw up off the floor and go, "My God, this is amazing!" And again, like 
compared to some of the other animations that we're going to talk about that were made decades after this. The animation has a fluidity that you just don't see. They were drawing 12 to 20 frames of animation per second, which is closer to actual film than most anime will, will, will dare go. And it still looks good today. The reason they don't do that is that it's prohibitively expensive. And especially now in the day and age of, you know, computer effects, there's probably an easier way to go. But uh, if you don't love the story, you will love the visuals. And if you don't love the visuals, my guess is you'll probably get intrigued by the story. It does have something for everyone in that respect. Speaking of it getting deeper, obviously... Uh, there's there's the telekinesis stuff, which is what everyone remembers. Everyone remembers um, Canada starting to really fuck people shit up with the force, essentially. But the thing that really stuck out to me this time watching it was, again, the military-industrial complex aspects of it, where there's... Um, it, it, the analogy of superpowers as super weapons and especially in this day and age of marvel stuff where the superpower is more than ever even seen as a noble pursuit i think that akira provides a really good counterbalance that we still don't see very much of and it's amplified by this story of this uh colonel uh this colonel that um is he is a force, ultimately, for destruction. But at every step, he's making, I guess, the right decisions considering what he knows and what he's trying to do. He uh, unfortunately leads to uh, first martial law, uh, and then uh, he kind of agitates uh, Canada to the ultimate destruction at the end. But, again, he's trying to make good choices, and it's really like the whole theme is like there is no healthy over industrialization of military and there is no controlling superpowers, whether it's absolute power corrupts absolutely because you're Canada and you have telekinesis or it's the government and it has access to guess what? This is all a metaphor for atomic bombs. It. it well, and nothing you can sort of nothing see how that would be a personal thread that would be, you know, relevant to the culture with Hiroshima, etc. Like that should maybe go without saying in their culture, but maybe maybe wouldn't with ours. But this idea that technology does have this this danger to it, uh, and that makes a lot more sense. I I can sort of see a lot more doom and gloom coming from that side of the world, considering you know what what's to come of it, and. Uh, it's not the Star Trek idea where, where uh, science is progress, science is going to save us, science is our helper, you know. Uh, when we see the, the, this guy's flesh being rendered with the mechanics and the machines, it's awful and horrifying. And uh, he's being driven mad, even if he starts from an altruistic place. Like, 
too much has happened to him in too short a period of time and his fragile mind has shattered and uh, whatever happens even you know even well-intentioned it's going to be unpredictable it's going to be madness it's going to be devastation now again uh the our gang of street punks are sort of saved and spared i don't know why they are worthy of you know starting this next wave in this new world but i do believe that this is the cyclical uh, cyclical thing that eventually you know the city will be quote rebuilt and then the city will be destroyed and then the city will be rebuilt and then the city will be destroyed and we just get to watch this particular cycle um, how much entertainment value you get out of it well again they they make it worth your while because uh, it, it feels tragic we like these kids before all the shit goes down and uh, because it gets this huge apocalyptic s- scope to it at the end like shit goes down <laughs> a guy gets shot with a sky laser at one point and that's the one of the least destructive moments in the movie yeah yeah and it gives you a sort of scale of destruction that you don't tend to see in, again, straight movies. You almost need to go fully animated. And, uh, yeah. It is real hard sci-fi. And um, it has genuinely shocking moments. There's a scene where these street gang kids are getting kind of backed in the corner by the authorities. And one of our characters inadvertently shoots one of the cops in the head. It's like this total brutal headshot. But it took the it took the air out of the tires when I was rewatching. I was like, "Oh shit, that is not good." <laughs> um, it, it has genuine good cinematic beats and moments where you can get right lost in it, which I find because of the artifice of anime doesn't always happen for me. So I don't know. I'm having a similar problem talking about Akira that I would about Jaws or like a, a Wizard of Oz or something. It's just such an obvious and epic and important piece of anime is that I just don't know what more can be said about it. I mean, if if you're a little bit into anime, you've heard of Akira, and if you haven't seen it, it's probably on your things to do list, right? How about this? Um, let's talk about it specifically from the focal point of Larry. Do you feel like this is a good adult movie? In that it is for adults to be experienced by adults how do you feel like it did on that scale i do similarly to the perfect blue i think that if a kid would watch it they would probably still be dazzled again you know street motorbikes and car chases and explosions but they would be confused like what does it i'm confused by it to be honest i do think that things fall apart the center does not completely hold for the third act but uh, the movie is epic enough and has enough of a good quality that can it it can survive a wonky third act as far as i'm concerned you know uh it's it's akira's version of the fact that like the shark doesn't look that great in jaws but it's still an amazing movie right and again i still i'm not sure sitting here if it's me or if there's something lost in translation or if I'm just, you know, I needed to read more sci-fi. I've I've read, uh, I think, the first two volumes of the something like 12 or 20 volume of the Akira Maga. So, like, I, I couldn't speak with any kind of authority about what <laughs> it was really going for. I know from some of the chatter I've seen on the internet that a lot of, like, characters that have, like, two scenes in 
three lines in the movie are like of great epic importance to the manga if you've read it but looking at it as the movie as it is yeah i would say it's for an adult audience i would say kids might enjoy it for the pretty colors but on an intellectual level if it's over my head i'm gonna say it's over most kids heads i'm not i'm not the brightest bulb but i ain't stupid (laughs) i think this is something the kids would want to watch but then they would sort of get frustrated because they like stop trying to teach me things stop trying to make me think blow shit up right i think like what the kids want sadly is like ninja scroll uh what they got in this case was akira which i think is maybe better for them (laughs) but uh there is there is a moment halfway through the movie where after this shootout um after they yeah they off a cop um the kids get rounded up and they get sent to essentially a detention school um well they they go to the um whatever police station first but ultimately they're like all right you have to go back to school and it's as an adult you understand like oh yeah the the youth are important even if they're out of debt in school you got to try and give them a chance but as a kid i'm sure you'd be like i just don't want to watch these people be in school they should try and shoot their way out um and it's with that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just the example I picked. But there's beats like that where they take a moment to try and uh, maybe it better said the anime takes a moment to try and show every character in this salvaging what they can of the culture. Ultimately, for it to all get blown up and have to be rebuilt again. But that's where we're at and i think that's sort of the theme of akira to me is that sort of this inevitability of destruction and yeah there's somebody who's sort of quote selected to be that destructor but they're not necessarily an evil person and the people who are selected to survive are not necessarily great people there's a terrifying randomness to it as well as much as they're doomed to repeat history they're kind of random as to who who's in the right place at the right time to have to i guess bear witness to it it's pretty deep. So, if we go back in time to the 90s, I was super wanting to like anime, and a friend of mine says, Larry, you have to check out Ninja Scroll. This shit is epic it's like fucking gnarly violent and like super capital a adult um but it's got like demons in it it's got sex it's got violence it's got ninjas check this shit out and i did and like because it hit me and because i was a teenager i it was impossible for me to completely hate the movie but it also left a real kind of sour aftertaste in my mouth and in, 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 in a lot of ways, this kind of defined what anime was to me, both in the good and the bad. 
in that it does use the canvas of its animation to show us incredible things. A demonic creature takes out an entire group of ninjas with this crazy propeller weapon and it's horrifying and it's violent and it's kind of awesome. Uh, and it's also kind of gross and rapey and ugly in its treatment of the female characters. And the way it dwells on it, it's not a perfect blue. It does sort of tip over the hand a little bit to straight up exploitation territory. And because it's animated and you're not used to seeing that, it, it, it makes it go from being ugly to like surreal and ugly at the same time. It's kind of scarring. Uh, yeah, there's a sort of a convoluted plot going on, but uh, basically it, a mythic stranger shows up in a town and is given a quest, and he fulfills the quest by defeating a couple of demons and uh, fulfilling a destiny uh, to stop this great evil from taking over the land. It's full of archetypes, it's full of violence, it's fairly energetically told, and it is adult, but... I sit here squirming because, like, I can't necessarily endorse the movie. <laughs> like, I want to be here saying, yeah, a wicked kick-ass ninja anime, but it's everything that a 13 to 15-year-old boy would want this movie to be for all of the good and all of the bad that that implies. What do you think of Ninja Scroll? <laughs> Mostly... For all of the bad. Uh, I watched... I started watching this movie for the first time about five years ago or so. Because I had asked... Um, I forget what I had watched. But I just had a couple of really strong anime movies. And I put out onto the internet. Hey, what are some animes that I should watch? I've been having fun. I want to keep this trip going. And someone recommended Ninja Scroll. Which was actually the second only the second most rapey of the movies recommended but i digress um there's a scene fairly early on where this demon like you said like he just destroys a squad of ninjas he fucks them up there's a he takes the ninja yeah it's kind of it's well it's cool because it's like these people are the elite they're going in already to clean up someone else's mess because you need the best of the best and they just get wiped out. Like, they're in trees. They're being all secret. And then you hear, like, a... And then all of a sudden, like you say, like, this propeller, this boomerang, this spinning blades cut three of them straight up in half. And it looks like it sucks. Like, I do not want to be cut in half by this thing. And ultimately, this guy takes the team captain and Wookiee style, he rips his arms right off. And I have to say, maybe I'm just a more empathetic person than when I was any younger than I am now but getting your arms ripped off looks like it sucks which sounds like an obvious thing but I actually like like real talk the the element of this demon physically has you in his hands you cannot get away he is going to do what he wants and it's not like a it's not like getting your head cut off which is like a snap you're dead thing a you're probably going to survive and b you need to just kind of sit there and experience it happening and it feels like it's equal parts violating um anyways i had started watching this movie speaking of violating there's a scene where the demon after killing the whole crew takes the lone female ninja uh to his hut to have his way with her and he like rips off her clothes and he starts sucking on her tit and at that moment i pause it and i'm like nah you know what 
nah. And I just turned it off. And now having watched the full movie, eh, I think I was pretty spot on. Like, if you get that far and you're like, this isn't going to do it for me, there's nothing really, I think, later on that redeems it. I don't think it gets too, too much worse, but it never... No, that's by far the it ugliest never... thing as far as the sexuality to it. But there's an attitude of it. There's a scene where uh, the they're talking, basically relaying news to this guy who's in charge of the camp. And he's talking to this guy while he's fucking girl. It's just like incidental to the scene that this is taking place. And it's just like, that's just there for the sake of being there. There's no point to this at all. And it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um and and maybe it maybe it didn't maybe I was just like really shocked when I first saw it. But I there was something that just didn't like. I part of me thought, wow, that's awesome. And again, I hadn't seen anything quite like this before when I first saw. It. You know, these guys falling out of the trees, body parts landing in the ground, and then blood raining down on top of it, <laughs> like literally like rainfall. And the images are quite horrifying. And like that creature is super badass. And in its way, the movie does keep surprising you. Like you say, we're, we're introduced to this squad of ninjas. They're wiped out by this one demon. That demon's super badass. Then it's killed by our hero. And then, like, like the, the balance of power seems to shift radically. And the, um, one of the more clever things about the movie is the big bad is so evil that they have to figure out a way. How are they possibly going to be able to kill this guy? Like, you'd have to soak him in liquid gold and sink him to the bottom of the ocean. Okay, let's do Which that. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, it's it's got the classic, you know, man with no name hero shows up in the town, changes the town, leaves the town, or, or is given the quest or whatever. And yes, the female characters there to get raped and then B needs to be rescued and that sort of repeats itself over and over again. It's uh, full of archetypes. Uh, and I... I uh, for the time for 1993, it's well-rendered animated violence. But watching it again now, it kind of like... The part of me that I thought was made this movie awesome when I was a teenager, I'm ashamed of now. <laughs> like, imagine, like, this was the first time you'd seen the movie, right? Yeah, all, yeah, the, way all the way yeah. through, yes. So imagine if, like, the first time you'd seen it, it was one of the first anime movies you'd ever seen, and you were 15. <laughs> I do not know if that would have made me want to watch more or less anime, honestly. Probably more, and I'm not super proud to say that, but for all the wrong reasons. This is one of the things. This is a foundational shaping my idea of what anime was, right? And uh, that's not fair for me to put that on this movie, but it's definitely a real thing. <laughs> uh, I can't hate the movie, but I do think that the movie is hateable. <laughs> like, uh, I, I think that there is an ugly fetishistic angle to not just the sex but the violence like you talk about that demon ripping off the dude's arms and then yeah drinking the blood gulk gulk gulking it down and it's sort of like a slow panning shot so that we don't miss any piece of this gore right there's something a little bit bent and not necessarily in a good way and like people who listen to my podcast no i don't have a i don't have a weak stomach when it comes to shit like this but it's not fun. There's nothing fun about this. There's something just too frank about it. Um, I don't know anything about the source material, if it's based off of a manga or something else, and that they're being true to you know, its origins or something like that. But 
The 15-year-old in me was kind of excited and thrilled and holy shit, I shouldn't be seeing this. And the 42-year-old is kind of, like I said, embarrassed. <laughs> we haven't even talking we haven't even spoke about one of the weirdest plot lines, which is that there's this I'm going to call him the Yoda character. You're talking about archetypes, there's the wizened old ninja that's trying to um contract the hero, the Han Solo type into it's convoluted. He's trying to contract him into fighting his enemies who have piles of gold. It also turns out that the leader of the enemies was a guy that the hero thought he had killed, but because he's super demon, he actually can come back to life basically on a whim. Um, so in his effort to convince this guy to help him, he poisons him with a ninja star and he's like, tell you what, I'm going to tell you what the antidote is, but you have to fulfill this contract first. And the guy's like, well, I guess I'll have to do that or else I'll die. This single no nobility lady, to the story at all. Pardon? There's no, no real person to cheer for in this scenario anymore. The guy won't do the right thing, kicking and screaming. So he'll be forced to do the right thing, but it makes you question the motivation of everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of speaking of fetishization and like being written like it's a twelve year old, there's this lady, uh, the one that gets that gets violated by the demon, um, and it turns out that her whole essence is poison, and specifically if a guy kisses her, if he has sex with her, I assume if he does anything untowards to her, her body will just automatically poison them. Uh, which is part of how they defeat this undefeatable demon is that he um, begins uh, violating this lady and that poisons him. But at the end of the movie, it turns out that the cure for the hero's poison is the female ninja's poison. It's so convoluted. It's so arbitrary. It's just, I want a reason to have this character be able to and need need to have sex with this other character and they don't end up having sex and it's almost worse because it's treated like the female's whole i guess character arc is that she's always been seen as a ninja and because of her poisonous body she's never been loved like a woman and this was her one chance to get some good loving like god intended it's sex is, is a bad thing yeah like a- she doesn't need to have uh you know one of those devices that locks away her chastity belt or anything like that no she's got this built-in poison <laughs> um there's some interesting you know isolated moments the some of the battles that that our hero gets into i think are fairly superficially enjoyable to watch but i i do appreciate the puzzle solving aspects of what are essentially eight bosses they have to fight where they each have their strengths and their weaknesses and watching the characters kind of probe and figure those out is satisfying. I guess, like, it's fine. It's not as great as 15-year-old me thought it was, and it's probably not as bad as 42-year-old me is selling it. It's probably just a middle-of-the-road, eh, piece of manga. <laughs> or, or, or anime, pardon me. Um, so... I would say if you if it doesn't have any special attachment to your past, it's probably a very skippable piece of anime. But um, you know, if you grew up, if you were a teenager in the '90s, then maybe this has some nostalgic value for you. 
I don't know. I'm already running out of things to say about Ninja Scroll. It's an is-what-it-is piece of sex and violence. I mean, if I can endorse the Friday the 13th franchise, I shouldn't get too high and mighty about this, I guess. But it's not necessarily what I want or what I'm looking for or what I even mean when I say adult manga or adult anime. I keep on saying manga instead of anime for some reason. It's, yeah, it's it's not for adults. It's for kids who shouldn't be watching it. Yeah, it's pretending it to be for adults, but it is probably, you know, intellectually more for kids. Sad but true. That's where I land on Ninja Scroll. Good enough? Immortality, you say? So that's how it all began. of those wretched mean. Why were those men chasing you? Is that all there is? The best swordsman this country has to offer? We finally meet. I'm so very tired of waiting. I want to thank you for introducing me to uh, Sword of the Stranger. I had never heard of it. It's from 2007. Um, again, much like the movie we just talked about, Ninja Scroll... We're dealing with archetypes here. There's a lot of very familiar characters that we're going to be dealing with. And it's interesting because the movie starts in a very visceral, violent, we're going to get in your face with this swordplay kind of way. And then it sort of settles into this kind of buddy adventure movie. (laughs) I don't know. In a way, it comes advertising something that it isn't. It, It looks like it's going to be Ninja Scroll and it ends up being something that has a lot more heart. Uh, than you would expect. So I got all pumped and excited by the violence and the visceral sort of beginning. And then once we got into this tale, we meet this little kid who's basically orphaned and uh, he's got this little puppy dog that he's looking at. Well, they look after each other. Uh, So yeah, as I was saying, because we start with this really hard violence, once we get wrapped up in this adventure and this little kid and his dog meet this stranger and because they get mixed up in this altercation, the dog is wounded and poisoned and they have to go on this sort of... He initially, quote, hires the swordsman to help him save his beloved pet. By the time we got to that point of the movie, I had well fallen in love with this little kid. <laughs> I like the way he's animated. He kind of reminds me of the the last av- or airbender or avatar. Like My kids watch that avatar cartoon and he's got this sort of very expressive, big, bug-eyed kid face, which is kind of charming. But, I mean, the, the the world had been established as dangerous, so I couldn't trust this movie that this dog wasn't going to die, and I couldn't trust this movie that things weren't going to work out for this little kid, and it, it gave stakes to this adventure. 
in the end of the day, like I say, it's much more of a charming buddy comedy in the spirit of something like Willow or something like that. But it, it, it's just got this moments of heightened violence. But it made the movie have this extra energy to it, this sort of extra layer of suspense, because I could fear for a little kid. I could fear for my characters. I wasn't sure that everything was going to work out okay. And usually when we're talking about a movie, especially with a little kid centering it, I can never fear for that little kid. I never worried about the happily ever after. And um, this movie made me care enough about the characters to care like whether or not things were going to work out or live or die and have some anxiety towards it. And again, coming out of completely the left field, never heard of this movie before. I took the ride. It was like <laughs> some samurai hybrid of like the journey of Natty Gan and like some crazy duelist bloodletting. <laughs> so uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, it was a very pleasant surprise. And thank you for introducing me to it. You're very welcome for introducing you to it. Um, when I watched this, again, I... Uh, I, I think I pulled this out as a partial fix to the list once we were amending it after the failed first recording. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, so rewatching it for this episode, I, I watched it. The very, very first scene is whatever. It's like the kid running away from his village, which is burning. The scene right after is very visceral. It's, there's a caravan that gets raided and it sets the, the tone really quick. And as I kept watching this movie, my heart sank because I was like, shit, this isn't an adult movie. The action is very R, but every other element of this movie is a hard PG at best. Um, Journey of Natty Gan thing going on with this kid going on a, an adventure that's way bigger than he is and he doesn't seem to realize it. And this sort of willing slash unwilling companion. And then we've got this totally fucking hard, like, ninja violence. <laughs> so, like, the yeah. pieces probably shouldn't fit together as well as they do, but I got a, I got a kick out of it. And, like, it is, like, <laughs> it's not a little bit violent. Like, people's head gets cut off, and then the body falls neck hole first into our perspective. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's really fucking wet when it wants to be, <laughs> so... It is, and then it'll slip into a scene that, again, could have been out of a Disney movie. I love that dog so much, dude. <laughs> the dog's a traitor. He immediately went from the kid to the stranger, the titular sordid stranger, as soon as the kid gave him some fish. So I was kind of off board with the dog after that. I'm such a dog person. <laughs> And it made me love both the dog and the kid, just the way the kid was devastated that the dog was poisoned and that he basically kneeled over him for three days straight until the dog was well enough to drink water. You just fall in love with both of the characters before that, right? And that the dog was wounded defending the kid, right? <laughs> but again, uh, that's a sucker move. That's like like uh, the dog thing. <laughs> You know, in, in any horror movie or movies like this, you can we can watch a dozen dudes get their heads cut off or stabbed through with a sword, but you kill a dog, man, that shit got real. You don't do that. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole premise of the John Wick series, right? No matter how he kills bad many people John Wick he wants. was, he, they he killed his dog. dog. 
yeah, he may have murdered millions of people. Like, uh, just based on what he's killed since he's come out of retirement, you have to think, like, <laughs> his death count's got to be epic, right? <laughs> uh, John Wick, it's not as far as the body count goes, but as far as the violence goes, yeah, no, don't don't shrug off the hard R. I think my 15-year-old could probably handle it. My 12-year-old, maybe not. <laughs> I found myself largely unmoved by this movie. I think this might be the biggest split. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just found it really generic. I think I hate the dialogue in it. Everyone's constantly describing to me what's going on. Um, the uh, Speaking of dweebs that are into anime, there's this antagonist um, Caucasian ninja and everything out of his mouth is the most fucking I am very badass shit that I've ever heard. He's always like, oh, maybe in this village I'll find a worthy opponent. And I'm like, oh, fuck off. I just have anything to your character other than you're the very best. At the end, he duels with the stranger. And it guess what? He loses. The Caucasian ninja loses. The antagonist ninja loses. And he's like, weird. I've never been stabbed before. And I was thinking, how can you be the best in the world and never literally be have, have been stabbed before? Like, if someone was like, you're going to go fight against a guy. He's never even been stabbed. I'd be like, okay, cool. That means he's not very experienced because he's clearly not challenging the right people if they aren't even getting, like, a little dab in. Well, I don't know. I'm a little bit uh, on the Bushido Blade front of this. There's an old video game that used to be popular when I was younger called Bushido Blade. And one well-placed swing could end a fight right away. One swing, done. And I think if you're going to be, you know, having sword fights like that, I mean, <laughs> if you lose a fight, you die, basically. Or you, if you suffer an injury, it's no small thing. I think it's funny the way they put it. It's like, I've never been wounded by a sword before. It feels strange, but it's like he can't accept the fact that he's mortally wounded and he's just talking himself through it. Like, wow, this feels really bad. I'm sure I'm okay, but this feels like, I, <laughs> like this feels pretty serious. And I know, yes, I, I could choose to be offended by the, the evil Caucasian ninja, but I understood the role that he was playing in the, in, the, in the movie. And as far as you saying, like, it being full of, like, very familiar things, absolutely yes. But so was a lot of the movies that we've talked about. Perfect Blue wasn't necessarily treading new ground. It was just treading it better than most movies do, right? Uh, uh, Ninja Scroll was full of archetypes. This movie's full of archetypes. It was just, I think mainly, you know, it, it, it surprised me. I wasn't expecting that Oshak Disney vibe to be in it. And then once it was in it, I wasn't expecting it to work for me so well. But I, I was still kind of worried, like, is it going to be an old yeller ending and we're going to be super sad? And the movie kind of lets you choose how things... It's a little, mainly positive, but kind of an, an ambiguous end to it. But it's not as harsh as it seems to promise to be at the beginning, but it's not as Disney as it could have been, uh, considering the cute, precocious orphan, you know? <laughs> I guess not. I don't know. Not not a lot of it landed. Like the music, for example, there's constantly this epic orchestra that I feel is describing move moments that we're not watching. 
Like there's there's like a real heart swell during the final duel as if one of the kids. And this is, I think, where the split is, because you watch that duel, Larry, and you're going, this could go either way. I don't know. This movie didn't really pull its punches. And I sat and watched the exact same scene and I'm like, music, calm down. The good guy's going to win. I'm not emotionally invested in this fight. I don't care nearly as much. I this movie didn't age well for me. I didn't have a really good time with it. I it it feels like like you like the polar op like the same script but the polar opposite of Ninja Scroll. It's like they share so many beats, but where Ninja Scroll is exploitative, this movie is safe. And I'm honestly having trouble figuring out which one I find more distasteful. I mean, maybe would you rather it be too saccharine, or would you rather it be too kind of grotesque? Either way, it's too much of something, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I think one thing that I was not clear on, and again, if I watched it again and maybe paid closer attention, or again, it could be one of these uh, lost in translation. I wasn't sure about these villains over and above, like you say, the Caucasian ninja. Uh, they needed this particular boy, and they had to sacrifice him at the first light for some reason. Like, I didn't fully understand why this kid was so important specifically, and what that was all about, other than to, I guess create an action sequence for the movie <laughs> did i miss something or was that was that just <laughs> no i think you missed something um the chinese who are the antagonists in this who the caucasian ninja sided with uh their emperor had a i guess fortune teller describe to him how to make a potion of immortality and upon uh, on top of this big ritual that they had to do they had to build a certain temple on a certain spot and do these a bunch of again ritualistic things sacrifice chickens on it and things like that um at the exact moment of a full moon they had to sacrifice specifically this kid and i like the movie doesn't go too deep into why it's specifically this kid but the fortune teller described it to the people they saw the kid that has the dog they're like well that's the kid um and that's why he's necessary one thing that was a little interesting is that the movie described like okay it's based on a moon cycle so it's not that like if we miss it it's done it's that if we miss it they're stuck there for another they said another year i'm not sure why the moon cycle only works every year but there's like they basically they have to wait for the astrological aspect of it to line up again and specifically caucasian ninja wants none of that like he'd rather just lie and be like oh, yeah we got the potion whatever than be stuck in japan for another whole year and for some reason those stakes worked to me better than if they were like we literally have one chance at this and if we fail it'll never happen no, they got they could they can they could wait another year. It would be a pain in the dick, but they could. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's a split one on the sword of the stranger, but again, I guess uh it was pleasant surprise to me. It wasn't as vicious as I expected it to be, and then it wasn't as saccharine as I it sort of balanced itself out. Um, I, I guess it washed out the bitter t taste of, of Ninja Scroll with a little bit of sweet. <laughs> you know, it was the sugar to help the medicine go down. Uh, I agree that they certainly didn't reinvent the wheel, but I, I, I found the action in it pretty well rendered and exciting. And uh, the kid w with his little dog, I don't know. It hit my aw shucks button, I guess. I'm a big old softy. <laughs> Good enough? Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Station is an animated prequel to the rather amazing zombie movie Train to Busan, and it shares the same director. And as far as its approach to the zombie outbreak and the zombies themselves, they're sort of similarly intense. These are closer to your 28 Days Later style of like, no reasoning to them, they're gonna run at you full throttle. It's a serious fucking problem. There's no time to, 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 to sit around. And, uh, to the good, the movie spends a good portion of the time in that sort of no man's land when the sort of patient zero has hit soul, but not everybody's aware of what's happening yet. It's slowly starting to snowball. It's slowly starting to fall apart. And the movie very unsubtly sort of shows this strange <laughs> dichotomy where there's uh, an inherent mistrust of both the lowest and the highest echelons of society. You don't want to get too close to a homeless person or some vagrant criminal, but you can't really exactly trust the powers that be. And because of that, there, any chance they had of containing this outbreak is lost. I think what works against the movie is two big things. A, the fact that Train to Busan is an amazing movie. And this is not an amazing <laughs> movie, but like that's an almost unfair bar to, to put on it. But unlike uh, Train to Busan, which had like dimensioned characters, characters that did good and bad things, most all of the characters that we spend the bulk of the time surviving and fighting these zombies with are not super likable. I guess they maybe made that deliberate choice because a lot of their storylines are going to end with them being ripped apart by zombies or not a very, quote, happy place. But it just becomes another zombie movie and piece of nihilism after a point. And I think it could have been more. I think it could have been more. That doesn't mean that it sucks, but I, I, I sit here wanting more. But uh, what did Eric think of Soul Station? I really liked the beginning. I mostly liked the end. I thought that I was stuck with some people that I kind of hated for most of the middle. Um, I can't stand in movies when people are being loud in situations when they shouldn't be. Whether they're crying emphatically or they're talking on the phone louder than they need to be. Especially with zombies where... like. I mean, we should describe the plot of this. Like you said, um, prequel to Train to Busan, which I have not seen um, as of the time of this recording. So uh, Patient Zero happens. And it's kind of interesting because for the beginning, of, like it takes a long time for him to turn. He's just a guy who uh, has been bitten by what we don't know. 
Um, and he's bleeding out for a large part of the beginning of like act one. And everyone is kind of like, he eventually falls back with some other homeless friends of his and everyone is kind of ignoring him because they're homeless. And there is another movie. It didn't end up on this list somehow. It's called Tokyo Godfathers. I think that if you're looking for a really good homeless perspective movie that is an anime, you should give Tokyo Godfathers a chance. But that's not on this list and we're not talking about it. Um, no. At Christmas or any other time. Um, and so the movie, maybe a bit ham-fistedly, but the movie constantly acknowledges that like while the homeless are people too... Everyone is kind of reluctant to give up some of the perspectives that they have, especially since the homeless population is the first affected by the virus, which I thought was kind of neat because it was like, well, first of all, we're just a little icked by homeless people because they're smelly and sometimes mentally unstable. And now they're turning into zombies. So now we really don't trust the homeless population. And by the time it becomes a thing where differentiating between homeless and not homeless is beside the point it's already too far gone uh i like the sequence where they get locked into the security checkpoint at the at the station where first they mm-hmm. go to there for help and then it gets overtaken by zombies and then they lock themselves in a cage to get away from the zombies and then people in the cage start turning into zombies i thought like there was a nice escalating sort of uh, series of like events I was talking about it, the introduction of this movie, using your medium. And as much as I love the zombie, you know, whole genre, there was very few things that they showed me in this movie that made me think like, yeah, that was them using the animation to show me something that I wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. <laughs> Especially having seen Train to Busan, I know that this guy can do amazing stuff. And... Uh, there was no, like, the, we could have had them water falling out of the skyscrapers or World War Z-style anime, but it was all very much like you would imagine you would have seen it if he'd shot it straightly. There's some really good sequence. I like the that blockaded area where they had uh, civilians were sort of got themselves boxed in, but it was only a very temporary safe haven because once one person gets infected in that area, they're basically <laughs> trapped with that person. And it, you know, it spreads like wildfire. There's isolated sequences and, and like moments like most zombie movies. Cause I'm a fan of zombie movies that do work in that very basic way. But I think that gets, what gets you excited about the zombie movie is a momentum and B characters that you can cheer for. And the movie gets to a place of momentum, but it takes its time getting there. And I think it's really short on characters to cheer for. This uh, this boy who's trying to pressure his girlfriend into basically selling herself uh, on the internet so that they can pay rent. Uh, and then this guy who's introduced as, quote, a father figure who's looking for her, but we find out is just a, basically a debt collector who's not going to let the zombie apocalypse get in the way of him, <laughs> you know, beating or raping this debt out of this woman, you know. And this woman who's completely heartbroken by this boyfriend who, you know, is clearly using her and who's by all accounts run away from uh, we have to assume it must be an incredibly terrible home because otherwise, what is she doing, right? Uh, I mean, we can sympathize with her plight. She finds herself in a bad situation, but 
hard to like them. And then you get distracted when she and the homeless guy have a big crying session in the middle of the of the subway terminal. You're like, yeah, you guys both need to be quiet. And I get what this scene's going for, but this is ridiculous. You're just ringing the dinner bell. There's no credibility here. And I know it seems weird to say there's no credibility to this animated zombie movie, but that's what I'm saying. They kind of... They kind of folded their hand a few times uh, in that way. It's maybe a strong character beat, but it's a bad survival beat. <laughs> and uh, once you start fighting that way with a zombie movie, typically... Well, once you start fighting anyway with a movie, you tend to win. And it kept on giving you things to pick at. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned not using your medium well. Like, even the sets feel tame. Like... Like they had a a set deck budget or something like that, and it's an anime. You can do anything. Um, one thing that I thought was neat, just stylistically, was that it was. I believe this whole movie was fully three D animated. Uh, but you, if you looked at any given frame, you wouldn't be able to tell because their shading is so good. Like those characters look flat. Um, and I thought that was neat. Uh, I both like and don't like the twist that this father is ultimately a debt collector. I think that it's, I think that it's neat that when these characters thought that they were fully safe and that their goal had been achieved, a, another bigger, deeper threat presented itself. I did not see how some of the decisions that that character made, that the pimp made, um made any sense if he wasn't her literal father like there's a part there's a part where he goes after like a cop is like uh you can't go that direction the direction of who we think is his daughter at the time and he attacks the cop and there's no reason why you would do that if you're just trying to get your money it doesn't matter how much money you're owed like it doesn't matter if it's a literal billion dollars like why would you do that there's a zombie apocalypse going on brother you might have bigger things to consider like getting yourself and your family out of soul right (laughs) like there's the it's not a credible twist i think that they it's one of those really unfortunate things where they thought it was super clever but the more distance you get from it the less it kind of holds together and i think there's a direction where this could have worked really well for example the boyfriend I like I took the him pimping her out as like maybe a cultural reality. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I like this movie takes place in Korea. And my impression was that a lot of the stuff we were seeing with the treating of the homeless of how economically tenuous a lot of people's uh situation is that read to me like a commentary on just living in South Korea. And maybe I'm off base with that. So when the boyfriend was trying to pimp her out online, first of all, it establishes that this is something that they had done before. Uh, It's skeezy. It definitely doesn't make me cheer for the boyfriend. I thought that he was on a slight redemptive arc when, again, the not father appears because it seems like the father, who turns out to be a pimp, character offers redemption and a wholesome end one thing that could have worked out is because again this uh debt collector character he's very motivated for the first part of the movie 
if they had gotten to that point towards the end where the cops are cutting them off, if the boyfriend had been the one that attacked the cops, maybe kind of learning some bravado and some uh, determination from the father character, that would have been a better arc for the boyfriend. It would have made more sense that, oh, hey, yeah, you see that this guy's pulling back now. Um and it would have, it would have like maybe kept the surprise a little bit more. Like, like rewatching it, then you could see that scene and be like, "Oh, I noticed the dad's hanging back. It's because he's a pimp and he doesn't want to deal with the cops." But instead, he's like, "This might as well be the character's actual father until he's not because of the twist." It's almost like they threw that in late stage. If it was a, if an actual performance, I would have maybe made that argument. But I mean, with animation, the, the script was set. It's just, uh, yeah, I just didn't think it wasn't that credible. I didn't, I didn't buy it, and it made the one character that could have been quote likable, you know, the most despicable character of the bunch. <laughs> Um, but again, I think I'm being hard on it. Like taken as your standard zombie movie, it's fine. Like it's a decent little zombie adventure. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. I think that the unfortunate thing is that it is attached to Train to Busan. I know you said you haven't seen it, but if I was to tell you that it was the best zombie movie I'd seen since 28 Days Later, would that make any kind of impression on you? Holy cow! That's a that's a big fucking praise, especially coming from you. Uh, it's it's a pretty incredible movie and this is fine it's fine you know it's like we're picking apart like the bad stuff about it but i honestly think that your typical viewer who wants to watch a zombie movie and likes anime this this delivers it is it it, it is what it is um but it, it doesn't lick the boots of train to Busan. like it just like it, it almost hurt itself by attaching itself to that quality uh, of venue because uh, it's it's playing on a different league. It's like it's like the Star Trek movies as compared to the Star Trek Saturday morning cartoon. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's yeah, the characters are there, but it's a different thing. <laughs> so if you like anime and you like zombies, go ahead. Fine, it's a it's like a C C minus. You know, yeah, good enough. It's interesting, uh, if, if you look back at A Perfect Blue, how thematically, even though that movie is much more of a horror-themed sort of psychological, the idea of identity and the idea of dreams and the idea of blurring the two together is just basically all turned up to 11, to quote Spinal Tap for Paprika. Um, it's definitely a forward-thinking movie. I think it has a lot of influence. Uh, when I saw it uh, i thought of a not so great i think 90s movie maybe early aughts movie called the cell and i thought about a more recent sci-fi epic called inception and how um both of those movies probably would have benefited being animated themselves 
and how this movie achieves that sort of broken reality, that kind of chaos of what it might be to see the dream world overspill into ours. Like all great science fiction, it kind of starts small and conceptually. She's using this device to help this police officer deal with a recurring nightmare that's all wrapped up with his guilt for failing, or in his mind, failing. And we sort of have a little bit of setup with the inventor of the machine, who is clearly very brilliant, but also very uh, closed in and who's clearly been eating his feelings. The first time we, we get to, to see him, he's actually physically stuck inside an elevator or something. Like, uh, so there's the reality and there's the people who are exploring dreams and the people who, you know, might have a more rich dream life than they have a real life. But once this technology gets sort of unleashed upon the world and reality and dreams start to overspill themselves, not only are we treated to this beautiful spectacle of seeing the dream and reality uniting, um, we kind of get to see these characters confront their dreams and I guess if it's on the nose, it's on the nose, learn from them. <laughs> uh, so it's an incredibly ambitious movie. It's an incredibly visual movie. It's uh, sort of staggering in the scale that it's on the scope that it's trying to, to uh, reach. And I think it's largely successful. Um, much like Akira, I guess I wouldn't be able to boast that I understood every corner of the movie, but I don't seem to get tired of watching it. So that alone is a big thumbs up for Paprika. Where does Eric land? A decent thumbs up for Paprika. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned Inception. I definitely think that if someone watched Inception and they're like, oh, it was really cool how they went into dreams. Like if that was their takeaway from Inception, man, watch this because this dials it up to 11. I still think that of all the movies I've seen, Paprika most nails the sensation of being in a dream it's very difficult to film visually because we all dream consistently and we all kind of understand how dreams feel but it's very experiential it's like being on drugs i assume um where like how do you convey this effectively a lot of it is a feeling but they do a lot of really cool things where the dreams are as fantastical as makes sense they are uh, debilitating in ways that it makes sense sometimes your dreams will just trip you up and you're like well I'm trying to run but I can't or I'm, I'm trying to fly but for some reason I'm not flying very fast or there's stuff like that that I think this movie captures the sensation of I do appreciate the characters in this movie quite a bit I think they are endearing I think it takes a little while for you to get a beat on who's threatening and who's not um you know, you were talking about Sword of the Stranger and how you're like, oh, this movie set me up so that maybe the dog will die. I feel like Paprika set me up where, like, mm, one of these characters is bad. It, I had watched it a while ago, and by the time I had rewatched it for this podcast, I had forgotten exactly. Like, I remembered there's a there's a betrayal at some point and there's a bad guy and i was i was second and triple guessing myself because i couldn't remember who it was and i think the movie does a good job of every character is a true enough character that you'd believe they're one motivation away from being the bad guy 
even the ones that have entirely pure intentions. You have to also balance, you know, the motivations of these characters with the world that you're seeing. It goes to that thing like stuff that you experience in your dream is crazy while you're dreaming. But while you're dreaming, you don't really recognize it as crazy. Once you wake up and you think, oh, there was six foot tall frogs playing trumpets in that parade that that doesn't make any sense but while you're there looking at them you don't question them because there they are unquestionable real and and in front of you so how do you how do you deny that (laughs) it's just an interesting take on the world i mean christopher nolan maybe gave it a good shot but I, i again if you're playing in the dream world use the dream world and that's where your animation can really really pay dividends here you know watching all of these guys jump off of a roof to their death with big smiles on their face doing it like a bugsley Berkeley dance number or or like i say that crazy parade full of animals and toys what's with what's with anime and giant toys we saw that in akira as well there's something creepy about giant uh, children's toys walking about with their dead eyes (laughs) there's a dream sequence in akira that i think probably uh informed some of the stuff in this movie it's very paprika feeling There's so much going on that, I mean, it is a little bit overwhelming. And um, the sort of surrealist bend to it, again, I wish that David Lynch could tackle these themes in a cogent manner. I don't believe that it's something that he's capable of, but like showing us this this surreality and, and still giving us something tangible that we're hanging on to. Like, uh, I, I'm terrible with the main character's names, but the, the doctor who's basically been using this technology she seems really kind of reserved when we see her herself but when she's sort of this avatar version of herself in the dream this this dream pixie thing uh it's it's well nightmare on street 3 the dream warriors she has all of this untapped potential when she's asleep if she could only get a hold of that while she was awake but unfortunately, uh, the, the longer that dream and reality uh, are converging, we, we, we learn that they, they do not coalesce together very well at all. You can do dream or you can live, but you can't apparently do both at the same time. I do appreciate... So to be clear, uh, the avatar for the main character, Doctor, is Paprika, the titular character? Um no, that's that's the deal is that she goes into people's dreams for therapy and in their dreams she is paprika the person you see that she interacts with that you interact with in order to interact with this doctor is paprika and it was really interesting because as like you said uh, the actual science or reasoning behind it is never really explained but at some point the power of dreams come to real life and we get to see paprika be her own actual character in the real world as much as these dream things are real it's interesting to me because i really liked 
I think they did this too while they were only in dreams, but while the worlds are merging, Paprika has a lot of ability to manipulate the dream and change the situation to her benefit, but it's not always empowering. And I always, I, I thought that that was a really neat way to both empower and threaten our characters. For example, let's say uh, people are chasing the main characters and Paprika puts them into a poster. So they're hiding, but the poster catches on fire. All of a sudden they're stuck in this poster and maybe they'll catch on fire. There's a lot of stuff like that. So the movie in the third act just kind of bounces from moment to moment to moment where you never feel fully comfortable with the safety of the characters. And I think it's very effective. And you could very easily like lose the thread of any kind of narrative and it just becomes a bunch of nonsense. But there's still, it gets shady, but there's still a, th- a through line if you, if you look to find it. It also does this weird thing, which I've experienced personally from dreaming. So since I experienced it, I assume everyone else has, where a dream starts turning south on you. You don't like the way things are going. And all of a sudden you just jump the needle. All of a sudden, like you flip a switch and your environment completely changes and now you're at a picnic instead of whatever that place which was starting to get on your nerves was. But they do that in such a way that you follow that weird chain of non-logic, right? <laughs> the poster thing's an interesting idea. Yeah, we're in a poster, but now we're stuck in a poster. Posters are kind of fragile. What if it caught on fire? Oh shit, it's on fire. It's just this weird... It's like trying to the the task that the filmmakers set themselves is trying to visualize the unconscious which is <laughs> let's say ambitious okay yeah and i think it comes through <laughs> and well done I think, yeah. so i mean uh as a work of pure art uh, like for that alone like like high o- overhand high five <laughs> like i'm very impressed for that again because of that by its necessity there's a lot of chaos to the movie even madness but none of it seems inappropriate and all of it none of it seems random all of it seems thought out meticulously so and again a meticulously thought out surrealist view of the unconscious good luck (laughs) paprika is unlike any movie so watch it (laughs) like like, i don't know what else i can say at that point i I will say a moment of the movie that was kind of weak for me i think in general this movie has let's say slightly more interesting characters than you would expect from the onset there is however this quote-unquote mystery the very first uh character we kind of meet is this detective and he has some dark and sordid past related to movies and I think the buildup and the payoff of that is really bland. It's just it's on like, the nose. Just like, yeah. yeah. It's probably yeah. one of the most on the nose things. It's a great narrative tool to introduce us to the tech and the idea of dream sharing. And from a plot point, it's helpful there. But it is probably the most obvious piece of writing in the movie. I'll agree with you there. Mm-hmm. I'd almost think it'd be better if they hadn't said what the I don't even want to call it a twist, but what the event was of is like if we had just gotten to the end of the movie and the cop feels better now, I think that's better. That w- that would be better because then you could go back and be like, oh, I wonder why he's uptight about movies. But again, the movie plays uh, like Paprika. The film pays a little bit too much lip service to how um, impactful this moment is. And 
it does have a surprise uh, character, other character development, where the doctor that um, created Paprika and is the main character has strong feelings for a character that's made out to be maybe repulsive is strong, but he is morbidly obese. And it's very clear that he does not have self-control and will never have self-control. And it seems like, well, not it seems, the point of her character is that she has feelings for him. She respects him as a brilliant scientist and as a coworker, and she's always had feelings. Um, and he does not mind her either. Uh, it's not too overt. This is not this is not Ninja Scroll. The, the romance in this is very downplayed. But some are so introverted that they would never be able to, in the real world, admit if they had feelings, let alone maybe acknowledge it to themselves. Right. Um, it, but I think part of it was her seeing his dream version of himself, which is, is a big kid's toy. Again, a robotic kid's toy. He's like, it sees that he's both sort of creative, but sort of feels like he's doomed to walk this path. He doesn't get to be loved because, you know, he's a big fat, he, he lives inside his head and he's trapped inside this fat body. But seeing his dream version of himself, she can sort of relate to that and connect but the question would be would they ever have made that connection if they didn't see each other's dream versions right if they were just two people who worked in the office together they may have gone on that way forever and again yeah maybe it's on the nose that she sees through the outer bulk to the true good soul within but again uh, I believe that, especially when you're dealing with the unconscious, broad strokes are probably good places to start. And with the complex narrative that you had going on on top of everything else, why why sweat the small stuff in this area? I mean, it was a win for both characters. We liked both of those characters. And uh, I think that because of the way he's first portrayed, we have that initial, oh, he's obese. He's, we have a negative reaction to him. We feel like there should be... That's a flaw in him when really it's it's an outward expression of sort of an inward issue, right? Mm. Uh, so it's deep. <laughs> it's a deeper movie. Yeah. They didn't they and didn't need that angle. Prove. It just goes to prove that the dream therapy works. Yes. <laughs> well, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be I mean, like real world. <laughs> that would definitely be some next level tech. I don't know what we're talking about here. Um, and in a way, that fits better in the anime world as well, because we can swallow a high, high concept piece of sci-fi that maybe if we saw it in living color would, would just be too much. I don't like, like I wouldn't want, or maybe I would, but I'd be scared to see like a live action remake of Paprika. I don't, it feels like a movie that was meant to be an animated movie. I don't know. I don't know how you would approach it otherwise. Um, so that will definitely make it stand out on the list for me for that. I mean, Soul Station could have been made in any medium, you know, <laughs> Ninja Scroll yeah. could have been made in any medium. Paprika had to be anime. Good enough? Yeah, that's a good place to end it.
Eric Jurgens, thank you so much. Thank you so much for returning to Rank and Review. Um, it's going to be an interesting rank, and uh, it's going to be controversial rank, because I feel like you already know my take on three of these movies, which gave you a real, you know, some cards to play in this. So is this the episode? Are you going to take back the championship? Is Lee going to be swearing at his computer when he listens to this? <laughs> what was your least favorite of these six animated movies and why? Like a noble hero, I must be true to myself. So Lee, you're probably safe because I know for a fact, unless you've had a change of heart, our top two are not the same. Um, And I'm willing to bet that our bottom one is not the same because let me tell you, out of all of these movies, even though I actively dislike some more, Sword of the Stranger was my least favorite. I was just, I was bored with this movie. I was bored of this movie telling me what to feel at every moment instead of letting me feel it naturally something that i wouldn't accuse ninja scroll of for all its failings and disgusting attitudes i like there's no part of this there's i would argue there's no part of story of the stranger that is a surprise um if you're surprised by it that's one thing but i think the plot beats are so by the numbers that it takes away some of that magic that i like about how weird and novel anime can be and how broken the structures can be in ways that i find again intriguing and engaging and sort of the stranger just had none of that it felt so weak with that in mind number five is Ninja Scroll because that movie's disgusting and it's lazy and it's it's for children, but children can't watch it because it's for adults. It, like I, it's a gross movie. It's not the grossest anime I've seen, um, but it, it almost is. It's very for being an adult film. It's just so utterly juvenile and so utterly simple. Um, there is a series, and it's also it also has a movie. I don't know how the movie holds up on its own, but Afro Samurai, a project um, maybe not headed by, but definitely um, helped along by Samuel L. Jackson, actually, is an anime in a very similar theme to Ninja Scroll, where it's very bloody and it's very boobies and it's very all that kind of stuff. And yet Afro Samurai is not offensive and it's way more true to itself. Whereas Ninja Scroll, again, all the 12 to 16-year-olds in the world can enjoy it. But I don't think you can argue that it's a really solid movie. It might have been pivotal to someone's anime experience, much like it was with yours. But I think as a movie on its own, eh, whatever. Number four, I have Soul Station. Um, I don't think it's a terrible movie. I don't think it's as engaging as it could have been. There are some there are some visceral moments in this. There is a moment towards the end where the uh, female protagonist is trying to climb across some wire over a horde of zombies after watching another guy do it. And this guy had been proven to be very effective and make very wise choices and he was a survivor he was going to survive except that she gets stuck and she runs out of energy like two-thirds of the way across to the ledge he goes out to help her and he dies because of it and let me tell you if this movie was made up of moments like that it could have been 
Uh, probably number three. I don't think that it would have jumped that much higher. But there is a much better movie in here, and I will watch Train to Basson. Um, I will watch that movie because that sounds really fun. And the best version of this is a really good movie, but that's not the movie that we saw. In number three is Paprika. Uh, it's a very it's it's fun. It's intriguing. It's chaotic in a way that doesn't feel cheap. It feels like the chaos is harnessed and it is very, we've used the word visceral a few times to describe like someone's head gets cut off and blood sprays everywhere. This movie is visceral on a more emotional level and on a less tangential level. I really appreciate Paprika. I wish I could find, we didn't get into the subs versus dubs this time around. I wish I could find a dubbed version because this movie is so busy visually. I feel like sometimes I'm missing stuff because I have to read the subtitles. Um, but it's a very good movie. And if you've listened to us talk about it, if you've enjoyed things like inception, if you like the idea of movies, exploring dreams, give this a shot. It's very successful on that front. I would say my number two is perfect blue. I think this is a thoroughly solid movie. I think that maybe out of all of these movies, if you're judging it on how quote unquote adults or for adults is this movie, this is probably number one in that it doesn't just deal with adult themes, which it does, but it handles it in a mature way. It is the opposite of the juvenile sensibility that Ninja Scroll flaunts. It is just such an impactful, hard, smart movie. And I... I honestly regret how much it didn't quite impact me the first time watching it because rewatching it, I think this movie is brilliant. I don't think it's quite as brilliant as my number one pick, which is Akira. I'm sorry. Akira's the king. Akira, it's Akira's game to lose. And I would love to see the movie that kicks it off that number one spot. But for all of Perfect Blue, and I'm sure other animes out there, for all of their for all of their uh, positives for lack of a better phrase akira like i said it might not be perfect but for most of the movie you can feel it creatively firing on all cylinders and there is a a very hard core to it um two words uh, there there's a center that is very uh let's say thoroughly refined that I just, every time I watch it, I feel like I'm watching art in a very, I mean that in a not pretentious way. I mean that I feel like I'm watching someone's expression of something in almost every element of the movie. And it's, it, like I said, there are flaws, um, but it constantly rewards me whenever I watch it and maybe if I was like I'm gonna watch Akira once every week I'd get tired of it much quicker but so far watching it every few years I see why I keep coming back that's a pretty good list I mean like we're not going six for six we're not going zero for six it's probably okay Shit. it would have been controversial because we'd already recorded it once I'm sure Lee would have protested and been made a big stink about it but whatever we'll Lee see. you took away my Rocky victory <laughs> We're, we're close enough that I don't think we're going to fight over it. Um, for me, in sixth place, and this may surprise people, and for the most part, I did enjoy this list, but 
I'm putting Soul Station at the bottom because of all of these movies, I think that it was the most needlessly animated. It didn't use the medium of the anime in any way to help tell the story. It seemed like this is how it would have been shot if it was shot practically. Like it, um, It's another solid zombie movie, but uh, like I said, Train to Busan really like is some next level <laughs> filmmaking in zombie movies. Like People... It's like I said, I put it up there with Wreck and 28 Days Later as far as revitalizing the zombie genre. So it's like, I don't want to oversell it, but there it is. Um, it's fine, but in this list, in a way, it's kind of the least impressive to me. We're going to agree in fifth place being Ninja Scroll. There is stuff that you see in this movie that you could only see as an animated feature. Like, again, I don't know how that demon taking out all those ninjas would have been otherwise handled. But there is an undeniable masculine ugliness to this movie, right? There's something that just makes you feel ashamed for being a man about this movie at times. And uh, it really hurts what could have maybe otherwise been a quite memorable piece of anime. It's still got some great set pieces and some cool, like, violence that you're not going to see, you know, in a lot of places. But it comes at a price. Uh, like you say, I'm sure there's a lot worse of this sort of rapey, gross stuff that you can encounter, but the fact that it's even present at all is a little bit off-putting. I'm putting it in fifth place. In fourth place is sort of The Stranger. I think, again, I was just sort of sideswiped by this Oshucks Disney angle. I keep on going back to the journey of Natty Gan. You know, it's just this little kid who gets wrapped up in an adventure that's way bigger than he is. And yeah, is it familiar? You're absolutely right. I mean, it just might have been the right movie that hit me on the right day. I didn't know what I was going to expect at all when I sat down to watch this movie. And I liked what I got fine. It's the bottom half of the list, but I enjoyed myself watching it. You know, I wouldn't say no to anyone. The top three was tough and it's controversial because it's counterintuitive to the list that we made last time. But <laughs> here we go. In third place... Perfect blue. <laughs> Hold on, sorry, pause. Hold up. What? What? Perfect blue. Here's the thing. Um, I well, I rewatched, I rewatched um, Akira, or at least the last bit of Akira, trying to get my head around it a little bit more. Um, going back to where I started with the introduction of the thing, you know, using the medium to tell the story. This definitely uses the medium, but it is also the most familiar. Maybe maybe second only to sort of the stranger on the list as far as things that we have seen before we have seen movies about people who are stalkers about this toxicity of celebrity about people falling apart losing grasp of their identity and it's not as cutting edge i think in some ways and like it's having trouble with the top three so <laughs> then i put akira in second place and again I don't fully understand Akira, but I love Akira. <laughs> I think it's a visual masterpiece. I think that it it's endlessly fascinating. I don't think that it's it, it's like obstinate that it's something that couldn't be understood. I just think it's something that I will happily revisit and keep trying to puzzle out. Um, and that is, you know, it is the classic piece of anime. So, Paprika. The more I think about it and the more I just, like, deal with it, 
It's a better movie than Inception, and it's a way better movie than Cell, and it's a thing that can only be what it is. Like I said, it had to be an animated movie. I think, like, I felt that way about the Miyazaki ones, particularly Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. It was just like, this wouldn't have worked, at least not as well, in any other medium. And if you want to explore surreality and the unconscious being brought to physical reality, well, I guess this is as close as we've seen to it done successfully. <laughs> it's an incredibly ambitious, amazing, thought-provoking, dizzying piece of animation. And the more I sit on it, the more it won't let go of me. So... I know I, I'm full of shit because it was almost the opposite of that the first time we ranked it, but it was a different list, so it's a different rank, and that's where it sits. That's fair. I last time we watched it, I think you. Uh, can we tell the people what you picked last time? Last time it was Perfect Blue, Akira, and then I think Paprika. The first time we recorded this in the Lost episode which is only available to patrons, so subscribe now. <laughs> the first time we recorded this, uh, you were looking at it much more from an angle of which of these movies were for adults and which of these weren't. And it's very clear listening to you now, you're thinking of this, which of these movies justify being an anime? Not even just animated, but an anime and which don't. And I think that your lists are true to themselves whichever way you decide to interpret because I do, you're right. I think of all of these movies, Paprika is the most that needs to be an anime, even more than Akira. Like, I think that there is a live action Akira to be made that gets across a lot of the same strokes. It would be different. I think some of the things that make Akira brilliant would be lost, but I think that it would work. Paprika, I mean, we've seen The Cell, we've seen Inception. Paprika, not, not that you literally couldn't. I think there is no limit to creativity creative problem solving let's say but paprika really gets a leg up on being an anime both times for my lists i uh i attempted to just how did i feel about these movies as movies um and yeah <laughs> well i appreciate you like i said i'm not typically the anime guy and this has opened my eyes and uh, I didn't just do six. I did. We did eight <laughs> animated movies. So like, I broadened my horizons. Like uh, typically, and again, there's a lot of genre stuff here. But like, I if not for the podcast, I might not have got around to watching any of these movies. So thank you, if nothing else, for that. I know we didn't necessarily agree, but I don't think we disagreed enough that it's going to cause any strain on the relationship. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, anime. And I feel like I succeeded in my overall goal of proving that there's anime out there for most people. If, Especially with how this list had gone, I feel like now if I said, oh, there's this anime you really need to see, I assume that you would trust that recommendation. Whereas before you might have been like, maybe you would have watched it, but you would have been skeptical. Whereas if I'm like, hey, this scratches the paprika perfect blue itch, you'd be like, all right, bring it on, I assume. It was just that easy. 
Sorry for all the technical issues and for, you know, the drama that went behind the scenes. I'm sure that most of that you didn't feel as you were listening to it, but this was a fairly labor-intensive episode of Rank and Review as it's turned out. But the question is, was it worth it? You can let me know by sending your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca and... Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review.